We really are living in serious times, times of urgency. I'll explain why. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us today on The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. Great to be with you. 866-34-TRUTH, number to call, 866-348-7884. That is the number to call. At the bottom of the hour, we will be speaking with a very special guest with a very intense story. Her father, turns out, was a sexual predator. Her mother loses her mind. How, how do you survive the shipwreck of a family like that? How do you become a productive person in your own right? How do you have a whole life and produce a whole as an H, excuse me, W-H-O-L-E, live a whole life and produce a whole family? How does that happen? So we will be speaking with our guest at the bottom of the hour. Phone lines are open now. If you've got a question for me, and as always, I'll just keep doing this. I'll just keep doing this. Critics, you're welcome to call in and raise your charges, and put out your issues so that we can discuss these things in a civil and productive way. Let's do it. <clears throat> All right. It is June, and that means it is gay pride, now expanded to LGBT pride. And I do not celebrate gay pride LGBT pride. I care about all human beings. I preach that Jesus died for all human beings. I believe we should show love to every human being on the planet. I believe we should work against people being mistreated because of their behavior or because of how they identify, etc. However, I do not celebrate gay pride, LGBT pride for quite a few reasons. So, ah, all right, hang on. Hang on. Uh, uh, You may have heard a different, I didn't even notice what you heard, but if you heard something different at the beginning of this hour, uh, just an error on the side of our crew here, uh, leading into the show, this is the right show. We we will be interviewing a special guest at the bottom of the hour about her story. But I first want to talk to you about why I don't celebrate gay pride and why nothing hateful about it, nothing bigoted about it, nothing homophobic about it. no. Not in the least. I have an article on this, but let me just give you a little background. For for two years, President Trump did not celebrate, acknowledge gay pride. All right. So President Obama was the first president who did it, did it for eight straight years. And, and then uh, President Trump conspicuously did not do it for two years. His daughter Ivanka did, but he did not. Finally, this year he did. And he got a lot of negative backlash from from the gay and lesbian community, and they said, we're not impressed with this. You've worked against us. You've pushed back against us. You've taken away our, quote, rights, and, and we're not impressed with this. And to me, there was no good reason for him doing this. Here's his statement, June 1st, as we celebrate LGBT Pride Month and recognize the outstanding contributions that LGBT people have made to our great nation. Let us also stand in solidarity with the many LGBT people who live in dozens of countries worldwide that punish, imprison, or even execute individuals on the basis of their sexual orientation. 
My administration has launched a global campaign to decriminalize homosexuality and invites all nations to join us in this effort. Uh, there are so many problems I have with that statement made by the president. I appreciate things he's done to stand for religious liberty. Of course, I appreciate many court appointees who are standing for conservative moral values and are, and are constitutionalists in the best sense of the word. I uh, appreciate many of the things President Trump has done on behalf of Israel and differ with him issuing the statement. First, to refer to sexual orientation as a fixed category. That, that, is, that is a particular concept you have to buy into. And then to say how other nations should conduct themselves, it's one thing if they're executing people simply for identifying as homosexual. But if they have a law that if you commit adultery, you go to jail for five years, then they can have a law that if you have homosexual sex, you go to jail for five years. In other words, that's it's part of a larger culture in their country. Either way, it's not for us to dictate what they do and don't do. Of course, I stand against the death penalty. If a country, oh, but let me say this, if a country had a death penalty for pedophilia, for, for sexual abuse of a, of a child, then heterosexual, homosexual, that's, that's their policy. Fine. That's, that's the way they, they feel it, to deal with something that heinous, that ugly, that wrong. But, but I was disappointed that President Trump did this. I was not surprised by the response from the LGBT identified community. Like, thanks, but no thanks. We're voting against you. And naturally, that's going to be off-putting for conservative evangelicals. Maybe this will be the one and only time he does it. We shall see. At the same time, various embassies, Israel, Germany, other countries, they request it from our government that they raise the gay pride flag. So the, the rainbow flag, that they raise that flag and put that up uh, in our embassies in different countries. And the Trump administration said no. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has has uh, defended that and vice president Pence has defended saying we fly one flag at our embassy. That's the American flag. So others are saying, well, we're putting banners on the wall and so on and so forth. But the administration said we fly one flag only. Okay. That's positive. So even the LGBT and there is like mixed signals. What are they to make of this? Obviously they're not impressed by the, the celebration of gay pride gesture by the president. But you say, but, but look, we're just talking about people. For, forget all the other issues. We're just talking about people. Why can't you celebrate the people? Why can't you celebrate the accomplishments? I'm happy to celebrate the accomplishments. I'm happy to celebrate the people just distinct from sexual issues. In other words, if someone is a courageous fireman, I don't say and he's a heterosexual fireman. We want to commend him. It's not, not going to commend someone for being a homosexual fireman. Or if someone's a great educator, I'm not going to say, and she's a great lesbian educator. She's a great educator. So I'll appreciate people and I'll celebrate accomplishments, but I won't do the rest. I won't do the other. There's no, there's no purpose in that. So let me explain my basic reasons. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. And this article's got a lot of attention just on the stream website. It's been shared almost 20,000 times that's a lot for an article there. So here are the three main reasons that I don't celebrate gay pride as I lay out in my article. All right. One, I, I do not accept the categories of LGBT as fixed and definite categories worthy of special recognition. Put another way, why should there be a special month to celebrate people based on their sexual desires and romantic attractions? 
or based on their gender identity perceptions. The very fact that we've gone from G, as in gay, to LG, lesbian gay, to LGB, lesbian gay bisexual, to LGBT, lesbian gay bisexual transgender, to LGBTQ, lesbian gay bisexual transgender queer or questioning, to LGBTQI, so the I standing for intersex or interested, to LGBTQIP, the P standing normally for pansexual or polysexual, kind of anything goes. So this indicates we're not dealing with fixed categories. Or, or let's, let's zero in on the B, right? Bisexual, okay? Which means someone is attracted to men or women, either at the same time or alternately, all right? Why, why do I want to celebrate that? What's, what's there to celebrate? I'm celebrating that you're attracted to both sexes or I'm celebrating that you're a nice person who is attracted to both sexes. What, why am I celebrating that? Why, why am I putting them in a special category like Hispanic or Asian or black? All right. So fellow human beings, if they deserve honor or commendation, they, they get it, but I'm I'm not going to celebrate their bisexuality. Why should I do that? That's the first reason. Second, second reason. If I'm convinced that homosexual practice is contrary to God's design, why should I go celebrate it? Uh, If I personally know people whose same-sex attractions were the result of, of childhood sexual abuse and rape, why should I celebrate those attractions? If I'm convinced that ideally a child should have a mommy and a daddy rather than two mommies or two daddies, why should I celebrate a family setting that willfully deprives that child of either their father or their mother? I mean, do we celebrate single parent pride? No, we say to the single parents, it must be hard to raise your child on your own, but we're standing with you to help. There's quite a difference. We're not celebrating the fact that you're a single parent. We're celebrating, hey, you're doing an amazing job as a single parent. What about transgender? What about someone who struggles with their gender identity? Why am I celebrating that? Well, they've overcome a lot. Okay, then let's celebrate what they overcame. Not, not the fact. Why am I celebrating that six-year-old Johnny is tormented by his male organs and really believes he's Jane? Why am I celebrating that? Or, conversely, why am I celebrating now that, that Johnny is 10 years old, he's put on hormone blockers to stop the onset of puberty, and, and, and then when he's 18, he's going to have radical sex change surgery, And then he's going to be on hormone blockers the rest of his life. And he's never going to be a female. He's never going to be a biological genetic female. Why am I celebrating that? I'm sad for that. I'm concerned for that. I want to help. But why am I celebrating that? So that's that's the second reason. Third, third reason is this. All right. Third reason. I don't celebrate LGBT pride because there's an agenda attached to it. In other words, this is not a matter of me appreciating LGBT people as people or recognizing their accomplishments for the sake of their accomplishments. Instead, to celebrate LGBT pride is to recognize and embrace a larger cultural agenda. So this is is what I wrote in 2011 in my book, A Queer Thing Happened to America. The legitimizing of homosexuality is a perfectly normal alternative to heterosexuality also requires that all opposition to homosexual behavior must be delegitimized. At the very least, the gay agenda requires these three platforms and let gay recognize, recognized gay leaders renounce this if this is not so. First, whereas homosexuality was once considered a pathological disorder, 
From here on, those who do not affirm homosexuality will be deemed homophobic, perhaps themselves suffering from a pathological disorder. Second, whereas gay sexual behavior was once considered morally wrong, from here on, public condemnation or even public criticism of that behavior will be considered morally wrong. Third, whereas identifying as transgender was once considered abnormal by society, causing one to be marginalized, from here on, those who do not accept transgenderism will be considered abnormal and will be marginalized. And friends, I wrote this back in 2011. That's eight years ago. And really, a lot of it was formulated in years before that. So it's got nothing to do with hatred, bigotry, homophobia, transphobia, biphobia. It's got to do with good moral reasons as to why I do not celebrate LGBT pride. Shouldn't there be music playing about this time? Shouldn't there be some music fading in? And there, there we go. Now I hear it. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Now, here's the challenge, friends, with me saying I don't celebrate gay pride. That hurts people in the process. If you're listening to me and you are a gay couple, lesbian couple, maybe raising kids together, and I say that I don't believe two men or two women can, quote, marry, you take that as a slap in the face. I understand that. I'm, I'm truly sorry for that. It doesn't change what I understand is right or wrong or true or false, but it bothers me that it hurts you because I care about people. And I am a follower of Jesus, and, and my life is, is the life of ministry. So I, I, I want to reach people. I want to interact with people that are outside of my circle. I, I want to share the love of God with others. You might say to me, well, all I feel is hate from you. You might say that. If, if I say you may be both of you very devoted moms or devoted dads, but ideally a child should have a mother and a father and that your relationship precludes that from happening. In other words, I'm not saying you chose to be same-sex attracted. No, I'm not suggesting that at all. But I am saying that acting out your attractions, desires, etc. So it's as natural for you to be with a same-sex person as for me to be with my wife, an opposite-sex person. I'm not disputing that, but you've made choices now based on that because of which you're raising children who by your choices are deprived of either a mother or father. I think that's wrong. You might feel that that's hateful, but can we dig a little deeper here? Let's talk about transgender issues, all right? Let's think out loud together, all right? And, and this is on my mind, not just because it's LGBT Pride Month and the president's been involved in controversy over this the last few days and getting hit from both sides, uh, not surprisingly. But, but, I am teaching a class all this week, every night, four and a half hours, and then eight hours on Saturday on Christian sexual ethics, the intersection of the church with culture on LGBT issues, etc. Teaching at Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. So after the show, it's about a 45-minute drive there, then 45-minute drive back to my house. So it's a, it's a full night and be a full day Saturday. So last night was the first night teaching this. And we were referencing some things in my book, Queer Thing Happened to America, etc. And, and the more I taught, the more I was reminded of how dramatically our society has changed since God laid it on my heart in 2004, 15 years ago, to begin to address these issues. 
and, and since the Lord spoke to me in early 2005, reach out and resist, reach out to the people with compassion, resist the agenda with courage, but uh, allow me to reason with you for a moment. Let's focus on the transgender issue. I don't, don't get worked up on either side. All right. Just everyone listen to me for one minute. We are working hard. When I say we, the medical profession, we are society. We, I'm not a medical doctor. We are working hard as a society to find a cure for cancer. Why? Because we know there's got to be something better than chemotherapy and radiation, right? We don't stop here. We use it. We, we look for natural solutions, holistic solutions, other things. Some cases there's radical surgery necessary. Some cases a woman has to have a mastectomy. In some cases other organs have to be removed to try to save the body. And all you do is add a few months of life on. And then chemotherapy itself is destroying good cells with bad cells. And radiation is, is harmful as well as helpful. So we keep looking for a better cure for cancer because we recognize that the current cures are not the best and are not ideal. And some of them are not cures at all. That's compassion. Is it not that that's care. That is saying there must be something better and there's too much pain and suffering out there. Can we all agree on that? All right. The whole issue of transgender medical science, the psychiatric profession, Everyone looking at this is in their infancy in terms of analyzing. There have been no studies of babies, right? Pretty much out of the womb, brain analysis. Then five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, 50 years later. And, and you've got thousands and thousands of subjects. And now you can isolate, okay, this one, who at the age of five began to identify as transgender, had these tendencies out of the womb. Or actually... They were pretty normal out of the womb. This would be normal male brain, female brain. Here are certain contrasts, if there are those contrasts. And it's only at a certain point of development that this child began to identify as transgender. Well, what happened? Was there something in the environment? Was there something in their development biologically or chromosomally that began to change? What happened? That's not been done. Okay, a, a lot of this is shooting in the dark. I, I went to a website where there was a conference where it was a strongly pro-transgender conference where the doctors, where the participants were all believing in transitioning and helping people transition, etc. And one of them was a brain specialist said, we really know very little right now. This is all very primitive, but this is what we believe is the right direction to go. I'm paraphrasing. I've had done research and read what other brain specialists have said. This is crazy. This is a complete Witch hunt, this is crazy. This is going in the wrong direction. We're not helping people where they need to be helped. As, as one famous psychologist said, that the problem is in the mind, not the member. In other words, not the body part, but the, the insides of the person emotionally and mentally and, 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 and psychologically. So when I say that there's got to be a better way, when I say that we're, we're not celebrating transgenderism, that we're not celebrating Bruce Jenner, who's now Caitlyn Jenner. We're not celebrating the teenager Jazz, who's transitioning in a reality TV show. Because we know there's got to be a better way. And we also know people who are ex-transgender. Yes, they exist. They went through all the torment. Some of them had full-blown sex change surgery. They experienced that. They did all that only 
to realize there were deeper issues. And when those deeper issues were addressed, they found wholeness. And now they're at home in their bodies. Some of them couldn't reverse everything they had done with sex change surgery. So in certain ways, they mutilated their bodies. But they're whole people on the inside. And they're enjoying life in the body in which they were born. We're not talking about someone intersex. We're not talking about someone intersex. Someone intersex is biologically or chromosomally abnormal. That's a totally separate issue. We're talking about someone who is biologically chromosomally male and identifies as female or biologically chromosomally female and identifies as male. I'm not going to celebrate that. And I'm not going to celebrate the, the trauma that they're going to live with. I'm not going to celebrate the pain that they experience. I'm not going to celebrate putting a child on, on hormone blockers when they're 10 years old without clear studies done in terms of what's going to happen to their health. And is it going to increase risk of cancer? Is it going to have other negative effects 20, 30 years down the line to experiment on that child? Right. Cause that's, that's the way we do it now. Look, how long ago was it that we did lobotomies for people with, with, with mental illness? And that was the solution. And we destroyed their lives. All right. So the idea that this is the best we can offer I'm sure there's got to be better. And you say, well, what do you do in the meantime? Well, that's where we look at this holistically. And that's where we bring in those who have been helped and have been changed in other ways. And that's where we say, okay, what can be done to, to relieve the pain you're suffering? What can be done to, to change the way you think? What can be done to find out what other issues may be going on that are triggering these things? I'm not saying what the person's feeling isn't real. Look, we, we got stuck in Tampa. I mentioned it yesterday, Sunday leaving. We got on the plane, I don't know, about 4.45, and we're supposed to leave at 5.20 or something like that. We ended up leaving four hours later. Uh, there were various weather issues, et cetera. Well, at one point, we, we thought we were going to be able to pull out. They were having these little slots where, where people were able to pull out. We start to pull away from the gate. We pull back, and and they pull the, 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 the walkway up to the gate, et cetera. And someone has to get out and she's running pretty quick to get out. She smiles as she's getting out. But what happens? She's having a panic attack. She had to go off the plane. I'm sure it was very real to her. I'm, I'm, I'm listening. Well, you just get a grip lady. Obviously she couldn't get a grip. Whatever was going on was very real. But the, the fact is in reality, there was no problem. In other words, she didn't need to get off that plane if we had been able to see what was causing the panic attack, what triggered it, what the emotional thing was, what, what pain or trauma from years back, whatever it was, we could help her so that she wouldn't now experience that, right? So what I'm saying is compassion does not say, okay, we put the kid on hormone blockers. Compassion does not say we put the 15-year-old boy who identifies as a girl on the girls' softball team, because that's no compassion being expressed for the girls' team and for those that are going to share a locker room or shower stall. The Charlotte Observer infamously a few years ago said, well, girls just have to get used to the presence of male genitalia in their, in their bathrooms and locker rooms. What an obscene, ridiculous statement. Of course, they had to apologize for that. But that, that's not compassion. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better solution. At the very least, even if you say, well, for now, this is the way we do it. And, and then we, put, we, we give them sex change surgery, we put them on hormones for the rest of their lives. That's just the way we do it. 
even if you say that's the best how way we can do it now, just like chemotherapy and radiation, et cetera, the best way we know how to treat cancer, even though it's not ideal, even if that's your position, which is not mine, all right? Because I still don't believe that's the right thing to do for someone. But even in that case, can you agree with me that we should be looking for a better way? Can you agree with me that the better thing is for the person to be at home in their own body? That the better thing is not to subject them to hormones for life and not to subject them to radical sex change surgery and not to subject to them to the, to the humiliation they may experience because they don't look like others look, et cetera, et cetera. Can't you at least agree that there's got to be a better way and compassion calls for it and that that's why I don't celebrate the transgender? All right, we'll be back for an interview you do not want to miss. Stay right here. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. A few weeks back, I had on the broadcast David Horowitz, a key voice in America today, sounding the alarm about a dark agenda that is really out to destroy our country. Not long after the interview, got an email from David Horowitz himself telling me that his wife, Christine, has written an amazing book about her life story, Climbing Out of the Wreck. Would I be interested in having her on? And when I began to look at the story, I thought, oh my, are you kidding me? This is a story that needs to be told and, and one where words can barely convey the intense reality of the story, the wreck out of which Christine climbed and, and the life of wholeness that she has been able to live. Uh, Christine, thanks so much for writing the book and for joining us on the line of fire. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. And all uh, your me, kind words. Oh, well, sure. Let me just ask the big question. How difficult was it for you to have to revisit everything you had to revisit to write a book about the wreck out of which you climbed? It was very hard. It took about a year, and it, there was times that I had to just walk away from it because um, it was like having flashbacks. And I think people that have had levels of trauma would understand that. Um, and then I knew that it was important to do. So, you know, I you know completed it, and I feel like it's going to help people understand and um, see that they can get out of a disaster or a wreck in their lives to live a good, decent life. So, yes. And there's something remarkable, Christine, as I'm reading reviews from New York Times editors and others, that they use the word beautiful about oh. the book. And, yeah. and yet, and yet, your father was a sexual predator. Yes, he well, was. Tell us about your upbringing. You're in your late 50s now, yes. so you, you've had a life to look back, reflect, raise your own family Yes. Tell us what it was like growing up. Paint the picture for us. Well, my father was a sexual predator, and my mother was an alcoholic drug addict. So there were 10 kids in the family, and you can just imagine the chaos 
uh, that, you know, little long children would have to endure, but an adult, it was a lot to take in. And you had to figure out survival skills without even realizing you're doing things like that. So it was a lot of hardship, but some way I found through my other siblings and watching my parents that I knew I didn't want to live that lifestyle. Now, in my home, we never prayed. We never, my father saw, you know, godly people or church as something weird, weak. And um, so I, I really, I never knew how to pray. But at times when I was little, you know, I would just start talking to God in my head. And I just, you know, because I would make friends outside of the family. And I made this friend that her family would go to church. And I started seeing, you know, that family and how they loved each other and had respect for each other. And I was there a few times when they would pray together. So I started doing that alone as a child. And I I didn't fully understand the whole thing. Um, But as I got older it started just kind of guiding me more, and that's in the book. But I I can explain to you is that there was a trial. Um, It did come out against my father um, sexually abusing his children, and uh, my mother protected him in that. So I had to take in all that anger, and I hate to use evil, but to me at times it felt very evil um, to find forgiveness and go on. I don't forget But um, sometimes, you know, you have to protect yourself or reach out to God, and which that was, um, you know, in my case, I ended up getting pregnant at a young age, and um, I wasn't, you know, in a position really to be having a child. And I remember I went to the doctors, and I thought I had the flu or something going on. So he said to me, no, Christine, you're pregnant. And my first reaction to that was, oh, no, I, ha- I have to have an abortion because it was so normal in my family. Mm. You know, and even some of my sisters, I had driven to their abortions, and it never felt right to me, but it was in my environment. Um, I went out to my car, and I just started to cry, and I said, if there's a God, could you please help me with this because I don't know what to do. You know, I was in a very low point in my life. And I spent, you know, maybe close to an hour in the car, and this feeling came over me. And it wasn't like I was hearing someone say, oh, you know, Christine, keep the baby, Christine. It was a feeling that took over me, and I knew that I could have my baby and that everything that horrible was done to me, that I had the opportunity to change that and do wonderful things and show the power in me that I was worth it to create a life for my my child. And so I went on to have my son and um believe me it was there was hard times um but I got through it and my son now is he's a doctor and a scientist and what he does is you know he deals with trauma victims so he helps save lives and improve the life of mankind. So I'm very proud of that. And I I think sometimes, my God, if God didn't answer me inside that car, I would have never known my son and went on to have grandchildren. And there's times that I go to visit my son with the grandchildren, and he's such a loving father and a wonderful husband that I realized I broke that chain, that 
that circle of abuse and evil. Um, so I feel really proud about that, and I really feel that at that time that God was leading me. I just didn't understand it. Yeah. But I went with that feeling, and uh, and I want people to understand that you know what I'm saying to them. I don't have literally God saying April do this or Christine do that. Um, it's a feeling that comes over, and it kind of guides you. And then it gave me a feeling, yes, you can do this. You know, I grew up with my father exposing himself and playing. I don't want to be so graphic, but playing with himself. And my mother would say, oh, kids, just go out and play. And then it became more of our problem if we questioned it, you know. Um, So, you know, our self-esteem were low. I have siblings that are still, you know, alcoholics and drug addicts that I have no communication with them because, they choose to stay a victim. They haven't found, to me, in my opinion, found anything to um, improve their lives or reach out to God to help them. Um, but it's important that people understand, when I was going through that, I really feel that it cleared everything up in my mind as well, that I've been victimized, but I don't have to stay a victim. I have something to give back. And that moment when it really came over me that I could keep my child, I felt that God gave me this feeling and this motivation that I was good enough to maybe that I was being hurt, but I was good enough to go outside of myself and give back. And um, I created yeah, a horse rescue. And uh, Tyra, here, Tyra, to- yeah, let, yeah. Let me, we'll, we'll, we'll come to that in a moment, all right? And, and, okay. and I, I want people to continue to hear the the good that's come out in the redemptive side, as you said, you were victimized, but you don't have to stay a victim. So people can better relate. And obviously what you recount in the book, sometimes for us to appreciate what God's done as a redeemer, we need to paint the picture of how dark things were. You know, when someone is miraculously healed, we need to know how sick they actually were. So when you mentioned my mother twice tried to kill herself in, in front of me and my other siblings, she lost her mind when I was 14, and they took her away. And I didn't see her again. Uh, you know, I'd go back and forth and see her, but she changed. It wasn't like my mother. And she didn't come back for several years to live inside the house. So, you know, being 14 and really being left with a father that was a sexual predator inside the house, you know, was a world that, you know, it gets pretty deep. You know, it gets pretty dark. Uh, my siblings, like I said, went to drugs and alcohol. When I was younger, about 13, 13 or 14, I started dabbling in marijuana. You know, but it, for some reason, I kept having this feeling coming over me uh, to say, no, this isn't the right thing to do. So I was able to keep following these feelings that I was having, you know, and then it finally... You know, like I told you, uh, with coming out, you know, out of my car and those feelings, I felt like God connected with me, and I started realizing what was happening to me. But it gets very dark. I had another sibling try to kill himself three times, one of my brother. So mm. it gets very dark. I'm just, I just don't want to be so graphic. To oh no, I, I, I fully understand, and and obviously there's only so yeah, far. Yeah, I want your we want your audience to understand. My father, it just doesn't stop in that household. My father went on to take other families on with small children, and he raped those children. Uh. And then he would go in, you know, over to Europe, 
and where this some of the sex uh, trades with small children, you know, it wasn't a problem. So he would go over there and do that. And I can let people just realize this, that you can take this in. My father always told me and my sisters, don't get near my car, don't go into the trunk, you keep your hands off my car. Well, there was one time my dad took off and he let his, left his set of keys. And my younger sisters, let's go look in the car, you know, because how kids will be. And we opened up the trunk and we found these shoe boxes with pictures of young children and prostitutes with their clothes off. So my mother oh. used to like to, you know, take pictures of, you know, these poor children, his victims, that the way that I see it. So, you know, you could, it was almost, you know, like a trophy for him, almost. I, you know, I don't know how to explain it, but to have to be a child and take that in, it's pretty horrific. I, I can't And my I, father would constantly ask us how we like sex, how, you know, this or that. And I just knew how to run out of the house and scream about it, you know, to get away from him. But, you know, um, one of my old, my oldest, the second to the oldest, she's the one he really focused in on. And she ended up, um, you know, he did a lot of, you know, more of the abuse of raping to her. And she ended up in high school. She found a nun at the school that was a teacher. And she started telling this nun what was going on inside the household. Because when you're in that environment, you're... The, the older, the, your elders, your parents are telling you, you stay quiet, you don't let this out. So you kind of have an understanding that you keep that sickness with inside yeah. the family. Uh, she went out and did that. Tell you and- what, hang on, we've we got a break right here. We'll come back, find out what happened to your sister when she went to this nun. And friend, we're going to concentrate on the good, on the redemptive side, but I want you to know... You may be in a similar, miserably painful situation. There is hope. Christine Stein is shouting, there is hope. She climbed out of the wreck. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I'm speaking with Christine Stein, her book, her life story, Climbing Out of the Wreck. Uh, there's a quote about the book by Marilyn Vanderbure. She was Miss America for 1958, but she herself was an abuse survivor. This is what she wrote. You will touch lives. Your book gives hope to millions of adults who were traumatized as children. Your very survival gives hope to those who wonder if healing is possible. Thank you for sharing your courageous story of victory. So, Christine, you were telling us that your sister, who had been abused, sexually abused by your father, yeah. one of many of his victims, and in the house, you just don't say anything, just keep this here. So she goes to school and finds a nun and begins to tell her what was happening in her life. What did the, what did the nun say? The nun um, stood beside her and told her that, you know, I will stay beside you and help you. And there was a trial and uh, my father was, you know, called out on all this. But I want to leave it to the readers because I want them to understand the system yeah, that yeah. that children go through. And um, so that, because if I give you a little bit of it, it, you know, I have to give you a little more in depth with no, it. No, no, got it, got it. Folks yeah. need to get the book, Climbing I Out of the Wreck. I want people yeah. to real, realize something, though. Like, you know, I said earlier, my father did not stop with just his children. 
you know, there were dozens and dozens. You know, when these sex offenders, you know, uh, that are like my father, you know, it doesn't go away unless they're arrested or they, they pass on or get too sick. So, you know, if you someone's doing that to you inside your household or if your parents did it and then you're leaving your children around that, you know, you got to really uh, pray to God and help you not to do things like that or seek out counseling. So that circle of unhealthiness goes away. And I want people to realize, too, my father came from a really good home. They were well-off people. My father's brother was a great man. He had, with his children, his wife, my grandmother, uh, my grandfather, wonderful, wonderful people. They didn't understand where this came from later on through the years when they found this stuff out. They just like, where is this, this coming from? My mother came from my grandfather sexually abused my mother and all her sisters. And I go into the book about just uh, he would abuse animals. And there's a story about my mom with her horse and what my grandfather did to that. But she came out of a horrible situation. So you can say almost, and there's no excuse for this, that she was kind of taught this um, cycle of abuse. My father now came out of a situation where, you know, it's a dream, you know, to be raised in something like that. And, you know, I hate to sound, say it like this, but some people, in my opinion, just take the path of evilness, and that's what my father took. And some people learn it, and then they have to be re-educated. But there is some evil there that, you know, is here on earth, and you know, like I said, it just doesn't stop, you know, so it has, you know, like I said, they have to be arrested or caught or, you know, pass on, you know, for my father, um, which he ended up getting to some trouble, but, you know, it, it continued way into his mid eighties until he passed. So people can meet him and think, my God, he's so handsome. He, uh, was a wealthy man and you, you could, have a conversation and think he's the most wonderful person you're ever going to meet. And then what went inside of his household, and like I said, he'd go to other things to be able to sexually abuse children and young people. Um, you know, you can never connect the dots. Yeah. So, so Christine, let, let me ask this then, as, as we come to a close here, the, the hope that's in your life, the wholeness that's come out of it, what's happened with your, with your son, with, with grandchildren, mm-hmm. what would you say to someone else that's the victim of abuse there? God knows how many victims of sexual abuse and other types of abuse in the home from parents, from in-laws, from, from others. What, what would you say because of the hope you've experienced, the life you've experienced, what would you say to them? I would tell them to reach out and start to pray to God. You know, he's not going to answer like, he wasn't answering like, okay, Christine, this or that. You just keep focusing, you know, and keep, take the your mindset out of being the victim. you got to figure out what you can do for yourself and being positive. And that could be going to a police officer, going to the church, talking to someone, you know, doing things like that. But then after you get to that next point, you start thinking, what can I do outside of being a victim? And don't stay that inside, because all it does is eat you up alive. But if you start, for me, it was figuring out how I could save things. So 
I started a charity, which I started. Um, I won twice the Kentucky Derby Award for rescuing uh, abused horses. Mm. But I'm not telling people to go to that level. But yeah, yeah, I always kind of go outside. And then, you know, my opinion, uh, if when it gets so dark, I believe that there is a God and He will always listen. So yeah, you know, and, and he you is... can get therapy as well. But you know, that's what saved me. Yeah, and, and Christine, Scripture says that God is near to the brokenhearted. So rather, again, for people, Christine said you might be a victim. You might have been victimized, but you don't have to stay a victim. There is hope there can be changed. The book, Climbing Out of the Wreck, A Survivor's Tale by Christine Stein. Thanks for sharing this. Thanks for going through the pain of having to revisit these things to write this because it's going to give hope and healing to a lot of people. I appreciate Thank it. You. I appreciate All right. it too. God bless you. you. All God right. You. Hey friends, listen, I, I have not experienced what Christine experienced. I was raised in a loving home, devoted mom and dad, loving mom and dad, but a great marriage. And Nancy was raised in a home where there were different stepfathers. Her mom was married four different times. The biological father was not someone that she could really relate to as a father. The stepfathers, in a sense, even less. Uh, we have a wonderful marriage. Our kids are whole. Their kids are whole. Everyone exper everyone's experience is different, but I cannot relate to what Christine went through. I can't. I, I, if I try to imagine it, I, my mind doesn't go there. I can't imagine it. But some of you, you're, you're in a living hell like that right now. Some of you are, you carry these scars very deeply and you say to me, Mike Brown, you don't understand. Correct. You're right. I don't understand. But it's not trite to say that Jesus understands. It's not trite to say that he lived in our world and he can 100% empathize with anything we go through. And he went down to the depths to die a criminal's death on our behalf so that we would not have to carry the pain that we would not have to carry the weight of our sin of our guilt or the weight of what others did to us so i want to encourage you that whoever you are wherever you are if you'll cry out to god from the depth of your heart and say god i need help and i can't understand where you were why did you let this happen to me be honest with him <clears throat> where were you when this was happening why didn't you stop him from doing that to me? Why didn't you stop her from that? Why, where were you? I cried myself to sleep and you didn't help. You may feel like that. God's heart breaks for you. God's love is there for you. And you will find out that there's been intervention in your life far beyond anything you could imagine. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be here today. If you cry out, God will bring healing. Listen to what Jesus said. He said he came to heal the brokenhearted. Not just forgive our sins, not just restore our relationships to God, not just heal those who are physically sick, but he came to heal the brokenhearted. Maybe your situation is even more extreme than Christine's, maybe less extreme. But either way, he brings healing to those whose hearts are broken, and he understands. And it's a mystery why he doesn't intervene here, but then he brings healing and help and love and grace there. But you'll find that he's consistent. You'll find that he is love. 
you'll find that you can take refuge in him. One of my friends has been a congregational leader for decades, but when he first became a pastor, he experienced the first loss in the congregation where a congregational member died. And he was on his way over to see the family. He told us the story. He was on his way over to see the family and he's praying and praying, thinking, okay, God, give me the right words. Give me the right words. What do I say? What do I say? What do I just lost? What do I say? Lord, what do I say? Give me the right words. And he walked in the door and they just grabbed him and hugged him. And he never got to say anything. They just hugged each other. And he said, that's what they needed. They needed a hug from their pastor. And, they, they, and he said, somehow there was a comfort of God's presence with it. And of course, there are words that we speak as well. But sometimes people just need those arms of love wrapped around them with a sense of hope and the, that unclean feeling being removed. God can do that right where you are. Yes, Getting people involved in your life is very important, as Christine said. And if there is actual abuse going on, do your best to report it because it, it may not be you. You may not be the only abuse victim and maybe others that this person is going to abuse. And either way, you've got to be protected. But along with that, if you'll cry out to God with all your pain, bring it to him. He will put his loving arms around you. He does that kind of thing. He'll put his loving arms around you. He'll reach out to you with his grace and mercy and he will begin to heal the wounds that are in your life. I've heard from people who have suffered the most unimaginable things in their lives. And amazingly, incredibly, God has had grace poured out on them and restored them. And they are some of the strongest, most whole people I know on the planet. God can do it, friends. Christine Stein is one example. 